There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is Ellen Beckjord. Ellen is the Vice President of Population Health and Clinical Optimization at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Health Plan. She's a behavioral scientist, epidemiologist, and licensed clinical psychologist in disciplined pursuit of harnessing the power of connectivity to promote authentic connection to place health, peace, and abundance within equal reach of all. Dr. Beckjord did her training in clinical psychology at the University of Vermont where she worked with cancer survivors and their families delivering evidence-based behavioral medicine interventions from time of diagnosis through end-of-life care. After completing her internship at the Vanderbilt VA Internship Consortium, she entered the National Cancer Institute's Cancer Prevention Fellowship Program and spent her first year of fellowship getting a master's in public health focused on epidemiology and biostatistics. At the National Center Institute, she did her postdoctoral research in health communication and informatics research. Ellen Beckjord, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm glad to be here. I think we had an additional five minutes of the show just to, to make up for the intro I had to give for you. What an unbelievable career. Uh, just phenomenal. So we appreciate the work that you've done. Thank you. So Ellen, you and I were talking last week before the show about Daphne Merkin's article in The Atlantic titled, Can You Cure Mental Health? Two Centuries of Trying Says No. The article highlights Andrew Skull's book, Desperate Remedies, which catalogs 200 years of psychiatry's failures often in gruesome graphic detail, from quacks and charlatans to the horrors of state asylums, frontal lobotomies, psychotropic drugs, and electroshock. Is the premise fair that we can't cure mental health, or should it be seen through the prism that mental health care's past has at times been horrific, and that shouldn't be an indictment of present or future care? I would agree that it should not be an indictment of present or future care. I think like most realms of medicine, the ways that we've changed and evolved and modernized and made more sophisticated and precise our approach to treating mental health and mental illness um, you know has been pretty significant and transformational over time i think there is evidence that we are in many cases able to treat and enable recovery from a whole host of mental illnesses some that involve very well-defined behavioral interventions. Like for example, we are able to quote unquote cure panic disorder with a very well-defined behavioral intervention. People who suffer from panic attacks, if they're able to get evidence-based treatment can stop having panic attacks and therefore be, be cured. And we're also really able to help in mood disorders and substance use disorders, um, help people reduce or minimize their symptoms, sometimes without ever recurrence of those symptoms. Um, so I appreciated you bringing that article to my attention and I, I enjoyed reading it. I mean, psychological science is, is complex uh, and involves so much, you know, the sort of internal systems uh, and, and the external environment. There's lots of complexity there. And I don't mean to say that we aren't making new and exciting discoveries all the time or that we don't have improvements that we can make. But I think the, the bottom line in mental health is that if we could get the treatments that are evidence-based and that we know work more reliably to more people, we would be able to see population level shifts in the burden of mental illness. It's we, we know what works and we have really well-defined treatments, not to say that new ones aren't coming and important. It's just really a matter of getting those treatments more reliably to so many people who need them. I think many people often tend to have one of two simplistic perspectives of mental health care. The first is if people need care, it should be available to them 24 seven, 365 days a year at little or no cost. The second is if someone needs care, it's for their own good, so why don't they just get it? As you look at mental health care, you've made the point that things aren't that simple. You divide care decisions into three levels, policy, the system of healthcare, and personal. 
Let's take them one at a time if we can. How do things at the policy level influence mental health care? Well, at the policy level, there are certainly ways that we can improve the reliable receipt of mental health care. You know, I know it is simplistic to say that good mental health care should be available 24-7, 365 days a year. I, I love that. I mean, I wish that that were the case, right? We want evidence-based mental health care to be available in abundance. We, we need it to be, and that, that's not currently the case. And there are many policy level levers that can help get us closer to that goal, right? We need to make sure that we're reimbursing for and paying for outpatient mental health services at, at fair and robust rates. Um, we need to probably widen the net of reimbursable services and providers. And I'll say a little bit more about that when we talk about the, the healthcare system level. Um, but we also have to continue to make progress on destigmatizing mental health treatments and, and mental illness, right? And that's not exactly at the policy level, but it's at a very broad level. You know, when I was thinking about getting ready for this conversation, I was reflecting on how oftentimes people make a special effort to say they're taking a mental health day, right? Like you would, I don't think people would say like, oh, I'm taking a bronchitis day <laughs> or I'm taking a, you know, an influenza day, but we make this special effort to say I'm taking a mental health day. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it goes to show that we, we think about and we treat our mental health differently than we treat our physical health. And even that is not a bad thing, but I worry that sometimes it creates a division that suggests mental health is not as important to our overall health as physical health when it absolutely is. And you, know, you would never judge someone for seeking treatment for a broken bone or a respiratory infection, right? And, and, and nor I hope would anyone judge themselves for needing treatment for those things. So I think we still, I think we've made progress on destigmatizing mental health. And I think our policies have to reflect that. Again, if we, if we think of mental health as different from or less than physical health, that can be reflected in a policy level if we pay for or pay less for mental health treatment. We don't want to amplify that stigma at the policy level. So I think that we need to pull the policy levers where we can to make sure that at a, at a, at a payment level um, and, and at a reimbursement level, and at sort of the, the way we structure and deliver care level that we have equity between physical uh, and mental health treatment. You know, you talk about the, the mental health day. I thought that was interesting. Um, I've been very fortunate for the firm I work for during the, the COVID crisis. Uh, our CEO's name is Doug. And rather than calling it a mental health day, he calls it a Doug day. And what he does is he'll take a Friday or a Monday around a long weekend, so like 4th of July or Memorial Day and get tack on that extra day for everybody who, if you are non-business essential, it's a day off, which is, you know, 25, 30,000 people. Yeah. And so they've really, I think, set the standard in terms of things like that, um, creating wellness weeks uh, throughout COVID in terms of like, we're doing yoga on Tuesday and we're going to do stretching on Thursday, uh, giving reimbursement for gym memberships or personal home uh, gym equipment. So just things like that to keep your, your mental and physical health moving forward as we've been struggling the last two and a half years. And so not necessarily policy, but certainly corporate policy, I think, is that mind shift shifts uh, to the positive in terms of stigma or destigmatizing, which I know we're going to get to in a few minutes. So same question about the healthcare system. How do things in the healthcare system influence mental health care? Well, we, we want to make sure that we, we need to improve reliable access to evidence-based mental health treatment. Now, that's a multi-level, multi-dimensional issue that, that tracks back to things like career pipeline and workforce development and mental health. We, we need more mental health providers. And there's a whole host of reasons that we don't have enough. And we, we need more culturally competent mental health providers and people of color who become mental health providers in case there are communities of color that wanna leverage services from providers of color and providers who are culturally competent. So we certainly need more mental health providers in the system. But again, I think we also have to widen the provider net, so to speak. So um, more community health workers who are trained in mental health first aid and who can complement the services of psychologists and psychiatrists and psychiatric nurses. 
Um, I think we have a big opportunity to build more infrastructure to ensure the reliable provision of peer support. You know, people who have lived experience with mental illness um, and substance use disorders are unbelievably equipped to, in their recovery, be of service to and support people who are earlier in their recovery journey. Peer support requires a lot of infrastructure, right? Peer support is not a new idea, and there's lots of great examples of where peer support is being used, particularly in behavioral health treatment. Um, my sense is that where we often kind of fall short or don't quite make it over the finish line with peer support is we just need the infrastructure. It takes a lot of infrastructure, but I think that's a place where a lot of web-based infrastructure can be um, unbelievably useful as we seek to build communities of peer support and make those, those really robust. At UPMC, uh, we have a program called Freedom House 2.0, which is a, a very concise training program that offers a lot of support to the trainees and trains community paramedics, trains people in all kinds of typically entry-level healthcare workforce positions. Um, and then those folks go on to typically become employed by UPMC and oftentimes deployed to the communities that they themselves live in, right? I think that's a really exciting model that could uh, be leveraged to build more of a community health workforce around mental health. So I think at the healthcare system level, we do have to widen the, the provider net. I think we have to think more about primary and secondary prevention in mental health. And you know, we talk a lot about treatment, which would be tertiary prevention, but there, there have been for a long time and are you know, good mature efforts to improve screening for mental health uh, in the secondary prevention category. But even thinking about primary prevention, like how do we prevent the development of significant levels of mental health distress or mental illness altogether. And I also will say that I think we're continuing to make strides when it comes to integrated care, you know, physical health care that, that includes an opportunity to deliver evidence-based mental health care as part of that package and trauma-informed care, you know, that, that really needs to become the rule and not the exception. Healthcare that is sensitive to trauma histories and patients and can accommodate those histories in whatever way is necessary as they seek to achieve the optimal level of physical and mental health and wellness that's available to them. And lastly, the personal level. The personal, the personal level, you know, there's, there's so much we can do at the, at the personal level. Um, Although I will say, you know, the personal level is oftentimes, and at the individual level, I should say too, you know, very accessible, but, but not typically where we're going to see like the population level impact uh, that we need. And I, and I may circle back to that population level piece at, in a moment, but at the personal level, you know, as you and I had discussed, I think at, the, at, a, at a foundational level, this is really about time you know, that you have to make time for your health and well-being, physical and mental health. Said another way, I think physical and mental health take time. And that's, that's often a challenge in modern American life, where I think we've become almost conditioned to believe that things shouldn't take any time at all. And we certainly live, you know, in, in, in modern times in ways that things that used to take time don't take time anymore. Like it used to take me time to do lots of shopping and now I can order things on my phone and it comes directly to my house. Time's been taken out of the equation there. Um, you know, any number of examples like that, but, but some things still take time. And I think health is one of those things. And there, is, there are dramatic inequities when it comes to time. You know, there, there, we talk about health disparities in places where there are inequities in healthcare, and those are an extremely important conversations. But when you look at populations that are traditionally underserved or vulnerable, one of the things that I think is almost always true is they have less time available to tend to their own health and well being or the health and well being of the people they care about. So, some of how we can promote good mental health at a personal level is by, by, by claiming and carving out the time that is really required to have a high level of health and well-being. And there are a couple of, I'll just mention, you know, initiatives that I'm aware of um, that, I, that I find so innovative uh, and that I'm so intrigued by. One is uh, called WEAVE, 
the Social Fabric Project, and the website is weareweavers.org. David Brooks from the New York Times is one of the founders of this movement. And it's really about figuring out how to leverage connections in communities to create robust communities that, that aren't necessarily devoted to mental health, but I think you know, are really the foundation for um, good, resilient communities that support mental and physical health. And, and time factors in there because you know, when you're in a robust and resilient community, you, you, you have and take time to engage with that community, which I think is so important. And another one that I'll mention is the NAP ministry, uh, the napministry.com, um, which is something that I wanna be very respectful of. This is an initiative that is not for me, right? This is really focused on communities of color. And uh, Trisha Hersey has a book coming out uh, called, I just, I wanna get this right. I have it up here. Rest is resistance, a manifesto. So time is implicit here. This is an incredible initiative that really capitalizes, or I should say puts a focus on reclaiming your own time for rest and restoration um, as an act of resistance against white supremacy, against capitalist grind culture, rest as reparation. Um, but, but something that I think is so interesting about it is that it acknowledges the way we spend our time is fundamental um, to our health. So I, I think at a personal level, it really is about time. How do we reclaim and claim time to support our own health and well-being, whatever that might look like for you? Like the examples that you gave at your place of work were wonderful because time spent to support our mental health might be time spent on improving our physical health, right? Like I find it incredibly helpful to my mental health to go for a bike ride, right? I also find it incredibly helpful for my mental health to participate in my own therapy and do things that are specifically devoted to my mental health. But I find a ton of mental health benefit from physical activity. And so I think those kinds of incentives and programs that allow that flexibility and that appreciate that at an individual level, there are differences in sort of how we wanna care for and support our health and well-being are really important. Um, but if I can just bump back to the, the policy, not so much the policy, but at a higher level, there was one other initiative I wanted to make sure I mentioned because again, I think it's so innovative and interesting, which is an initiative called Building H. And that website's buildingh.org. And that's co-founded by Steve Downs and Tom Goats. And they are looking at what they call the product environment and how the product environment, meaning you know, goods and services are either health promoting or health detracting. And, and again, I think even at a personal level, time comes in here because so much of what the product environment is trying to do is capture our time. Like Netflix is trying to capture my time, right? And spent ideally watching shows on Netflix. And I, I watch shows on Netflix, right? But, but how Netflix is architected or any streaming service is architected, you know, time is a zero sum game and there's only so much time. And we make a lot of choices with respect to how we spend our time. And people have a lot of autonomy with respect to how they spend their time. But Building H has, I think, really done a good job of illuminating that the product environment is designed in ways that uh, make it in many cases harder to choose to spend our time in health promoting ways. And that there's a lot of design elements that draw our choices to spending our time engaging with goods and services that, that are not always health promoting. And what is the responsibility of, of the commercial and the product environment to try to benefit the health and well-being of the population because we know that's a place where you know there's no shortage of good work to be done. A few moments ago you mentioned the need for more mental health providers. Yes. Before the pandemic, <clears throat> excuse me, we knew there was a strain on that profession, that industry. Yeah. Obviously really highlighted that through the pandemic as we're coming out the other side now. We're seeing people leaving the mental health field. We're seeing first responders leaving medical profession. You and I spoke last week about President Biden and the State of the Union talking about a national mental health program or platform. Haven't seen that yet, but last weekend they rolled out the 988 number, which we talked yep. about. Something like that, what is that gonna do to the strain of the infrastructure of the mental health provider system? It's I know it's pure speculation. No, well, so, so there's, there, I, this is an area of great, of great concern. You know, I was just having a conversation with someone recently 
and this is a, a, a pretty big generalization, but it really resonated with me, which was to say that, that the pandemic didn't probably in as many instances create new bad things. It made a lot of things that were already bad worse. <laughs> and again, that like really resonated with me. And one of those things is, is what we're seeing with respect to the mental health of the population and the ability to access good mental health care. That was a problem before the pandemic. The problem is worse now for all of the reasons that you mentioned. And I think one of the challenges that we have, there's a lot of urgency around these, this problem, right? There's a lot of urgency around having more mental health providers be available in the workforce. Unfortunately, most of the solutions to that particular problem are a longer game. You know, the, the pipeline strategies, the workforce development strategies, those are great. Those are incredibly important. Those should absolutely be pursued, but they're not going to create more mental health providers in the workforce next month, right? That's such a longer time horizon than really I think we can, um, than we can tolerate. So the new 988 hotline, you know, which one of the things I really liked about the 988 hotline is it, it, it specifies this is about mental health, about substance use and about suicide prevention. I think you know, highlighting all three of those is, is important. We know that in most cases, early intervention with mental health is important, right? Mental health problems don't typically start at an incredibly high level of acuity. That's not to say that doesn't happen, but for the most part, mental health problems start out as sort of manageable and then kind of get worse. And over time, become really functionally impairing and limiting. So there's, there's time in there to intervene. If stigma prevents people from pursuing treatment, you lose that opportunity. If the lack of availability of services, you know, yes, we have an outpatient mental health provider who can see you in six months, you lose that opportunity. You know, so we, we know that there are evidence-based interventions that can change the trajectory of a mental health challenge and bend it from becoming full-blown mental illness or becoming really functionally impairing. But we can't bend that trajectory if we aren't able to intervene early. So this to me is one of the biggest concerns I have about the, the mental health workforce shortage. Now, that said, like I mentioned with our Freedom House uh, 2.0 training program at UPMC, that's like a program, a training program in weeks, right? Like a five to 10 week program. So some levels of uh, intervention and providers who can deliver interventions like community health workers, peer support, those can and should be stood up more quickly. And maybe that's a way to fill the gap that we have as we try to bring more licensed psychologists and therapists and psychiatrists into the workforce. So I think we really have to work at multiple levels and be pretty diverse in the strategies and tactics that we pursue, because this is a problem with a lot of urgency that we're not gonna be able to solve with like one silver bullet. And to that point, mental health and mental health care are not one size fits all propositions. Yes, there are similarities, but they're different for different age groups. Which age group has been most affected by the pandemic and why? So that, that's a great question. And I, I don't know that we have great data to give a super definitive answer, but I'll tell you the way I think about it. I think that developmental milestones are really important over the lifespan. And developmental milestones kind of can happen across the lifespan. You know, certainly like retirement, I think of as a quote unquote develop, it's not really a developmental milestone. Maybe I should just say milestones. Retirement's a milestone. You know, entering school is a milestone. Yeah. Um, but I think milestones kind of cluster in childhood, adolescence, and young adulthood. You know, I'm in my mid 40s. I'm not hitting a lot of milestones. That's fine with me. You know, I feel like I'm on sort of the smooth sailing of highway of life in, in, in middle age, which, uh, which I welcome and I'm grateful for. Not that important things don't happen, but I'm not hitting any big milestones really at this point in my life. Um, so I think for folks whose lifespan overlapped with the pandemic during a time of many milestones, by which I mean children, adolescents, and young adults, I think the pandemic has been particularly challenging because the disruption of those milestones and the way that we might have expected them to play out. I didn't have a high school graduation that looked like I expected. I didn't get to have the wedding in the way that I expected. 
my first child was born and no one could come to the hospital to see, you know, uh, even just the psychosocial development that happens so rapidly in childhood and adolescence, then being out of school for a period of time disrupts that. I think the disruption of life milestones by the pandemic, which again can happen at any phase of life, but I think is probably more likely to have happened for people who were living through the pandemic in childhood, adolescence, and young adulthood. I think the disruption of those milestones was an added layer of, of stress and distress um, over and above what all of us dealt with going through the pandemic, which was a stressful event to be sure. As you're talking about that, I'm having a flashback to April or May of when the pandemic first started and I'm in the dining room and my then seven-year-old son is sitting at the dining room table with me. He's on my iPad with his AirPods. I'm on my laptop with my AirPods and that was the, the new world order. And yeah, I mean, yeah. things, milestones is a good, very good point. And it's interesting though, you know, I was also thinking about, is there this sort of sweet spot, like for especially young children whose milestones were certainly disrupted, but they had no norm to judge what was different against, right? Not that that isn't hard, but for, you know, for, for adolescents and young adults who had robust memories of what it was like before the pandemic and then had the wherewithal to recognize how things were different, right? I think that was especially an especially probably challenging experience to go through, but not to say that there aren't milestones that can occur over the lifespan. And for people who had milestones disrupted, you know, hopefully future milestones uh, won't be. My wife's milestone, she likes to quote the performer Pitbull and she says, any day above ground is a good day. So that's our milestone at our age. We've been talking to Alan Beckjord and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is Ellen Beckjord. Ellen, on your own podcast, Good Health, Better World, which just started second season, so congratulations, by the way, you focused last year on the theme of social determinants of health. What is a social determinant of health? And I'm assuming there's more than one of them. So why are they important in our lives and to our well-being? Thanks, Chris. That's a, that's a good question. Social determinants of health, sometimes we call them social influencers of health. And I just saw a paper recently that called them social drivers of health, are really about um, things that contextualize our lives, right? So not, not our genetics, not, not where we get healthcare, but really the rest of our lives, which, which has a huge influence on our health and well-being. Am I financially secure? Do I have food security? Do I have reliable transportation? Do I have housing security? 
Do I have social supports? You know, these are some of the common social determinants of health. And we know when any one of those um, is not in sort of a robust place that people typically have lots of challenges, especially related to their health, right? So if I'm unable to secure transportation to get to a reliable outpatient care from a specialist, right? If I have diabetes and I should be seeing an endocrinologist or I should be seeing my primary care provider on a regular basis, but I can't get there because I don't have transportation or I can't get there because I'm working multiple part-time jobs and I don't have paid time off, you know, um, or I can't get there because I'm just trying to figure out how to keep my home and the utilities on, um, you know, I'm ultimately not going to fare as well as someone who has all of those things in place when it comes to my condition management and my health and well-being. So we did focus the first season of Good Health, Better World, which is our podcast sponsored by UPMC Health Plan um, on social determinants of health. This season, which as you mentioned, thank you, we've just started recording and we'll will produce in uh, starting in September, we decided to focus on behavioral health. Um, and so we're gonna be doing multiple episodes on different aspects of behavioral health because we see behavioral health like social determinants of health. It's just a really foundational topic um, when we think about the health of individuals and the communities in which they live. Again, that podcast is Good Health, Better World. And Ellen, where can they find the podcast? You can find the podcast anywhere you would uh, find a podcast to stream. Our media partner is Post Industrial, postindustrial.com, located here in southwestern Pennsylvania. And you can also access the podcast from the Post Industrial website. You've also discussed on your podcast, and you recently wrote an op-ed about one of the ways you've coped with the pandemic is by looking for the few and far between silver linings. You believe one silver lining is a reduction of stigma associated with mental health challenges. I've been saying that throughout the pandemic, that you know it's been a spotlight on mental health, but in a positive way. Can you elaborate on that, if you would, please? Sure, sure. I think that the ubiquitous nature of how the pandemic has now certainly the pandemic has affected people in in different ways. I don't mean to say that everyone's been affected in the same way, but you know, one construct that I think looms really large in mental health is uncertainty. Most humans are not big uncertainty fans, right? We, we like to uh, believe that things are more certain than they are. We kind of wear an uncertainty buffer around us. You, know, you and I probably both reasonably believe that we're going to end this conversation and go on through the rest of our day and wake up tomorrow. And, you know, but the truth is, Chris, we don't actually know right? That, that, but you can't live with that level of uncertainty all the time. It's like very distressing and would, would, would make it hard to get anything done. One way that I think the pandemic universally affected population is it kind of chipped away at that uncertainty buffer. It stripped a few layers of it off. It made us a lot more aware of how uncertain uh, so much of life is. None of us, you know, knew that in March of 2020, the world was going to shut down, right? And then everything that's happened since then. And so I think that um, because the pandemic had a relatively universal impact, at least in that one instance, on a core kind of mental health construct of, of a loss of certainty, that it gets harder then to stigmatize mental health uh, issues and mental distress, right? Uh, it's easier to stigmatize something that doesn't feel like it's an experience we've had. Oh, that's, you know, in someone else, or that happens to other people, or, you know, that's not me. And so I think when, when we all experienced potentially some level of stress, certainly some folks more than others, and in particular vulnerable populations who I think, you know, disproportionately bore the brunt of the, the, the stress and negative consequences of the pandemic, but the universal nature of the stress and distress associated with it I think makes it harder to stigmatize mental health. And because we know that, you know, we've at least, for example, at UPMC Health Plan, we have seen an increase in the receipt of outpatient mental health treatment among our membership, right? We've been paying more claims for outpatient mental health. This is a great thing uh, that people are seeking treatment that they need and that they're able to get it. But it's become more 
I think, reliably a part of the conversation. You know, I, I, was, I gave a couple of talks this year at conferences or over the past couple of years where people said, you know, this is the first time we're having a specific session on mental health. And so I think that that's another indicator that we're seeing mental health and behavioral health become a more reliable part of the conversation on health, which I think helps to further destigmatize it. And, and you're right, I wrote about that as a silver lining, but I, I, I wanted to be specific in saying that I don't think by any means COVID has eliminated mental health stigma. I think it's given us an opportunity to make really meaningful and potentially transformational progress on reducing stigma associated with, with mental health and mental health treatment. You also wrote in that same piece that talking about mental health is not sufficient for truly changing the ways we care for people, mental health challenges, and mental health disorders. Why isn't that enough? Because, you know, talk is cheap. <laughs> because <laughs> um, because I, I worry that if we pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, you know, we're talking about mental health more, that we will not, in fact, take, if it was if it was an easy problem to solve, right? The, the problems of stigma around mental health, around the availability of mental health treatment, around creating a, a culture at the workplace and in our society at large that values physical and mental health. If those were easy problems to solve, we surely would have solved them by now, right? So these are hard problems to solve. They're complex problems to solve. That's not to say they can't and won't be solved. I'm a hopeful person, but they sure as heck are not gonna be solved by like having a lot of discussions about it only, right? We have to turn those discussions into policies, into new interventions, into innovation and in how we, deliver care and into change and how we care for ourselves and each other. Um, and so I just think we have to put a fine point on how important it's sort of like classic epidemiological paradigm. Talking is necessary, but not sufficient. We're never going to do those things if we aren't talking about them, if we aren't defining the problem. And we should continue to define and specify the problem so that we don't spin our wheels with a bunch of solutioning that is not feasible. But 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 talking and action together are going to be what really drives the change that we need to see. You just mentioned innovation and the ways we deliver health. What role, or healthcare, excuse me, what role is telehealth currently playing in the mental health care space? So I think telehealth and the, the, the another potential silver lining here of the pandemic, the increased utilization of telehealth and synchronous video as a way to deliver and receive care, um, really, really exciting. In particular, you know, we have to be mindful um, of you know, broadband deserts that exist and not everyone has access, even though like smartphone penetrance is, is very, very high, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have the, 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 the broadband uh, internet access or the, the speed capable of doing synchronous video to receive telehealth. So we can't forget that that's still important and that there aren't inequities there because there are. But it's also true that telehealth to deliver mental health care and to deliver physical health care, you know, has made it possible for more people to access that care without having to like travel long distances, right? It's also promoted equity because it's made it, you know, if you have some of those social determinants of health at play, um, you know, with respect to transportation as one example, you know, now it's possible to access mental health care from within an urban center if you live in a rural area and don't have reliable transportation, right? So that's been, a, that's been a great thing. So I think it definitely has enabled more people to access care. I think that it's been a good thing for the mental health provider community to be able to continue to deliver care during the pandemic and to be able to deliver care um, you know, in ways that, that, that I think are more feasible from a workflow perspective. So I'm really excited about what telehealth has done and what telehealth will continue to do. And I think there's even more potential than we fully realize. That and also in the digital space, right? In the asynchronous digital space, I think with respect to bringing more education to people, helping people connect with virtual communities and with trained, like for example, at UPMC Health Plan, we have a mobile app that delivers coaching for you know, weight loss and anxiety coaching, depression coaching. We have highly trained digital health coaches that are on the other side of that app, interacting with members and delivering that coaching through asynchronous chat within the app. 
those kinds of tools of which there are many and there's a pretty robust space there, right? They have a role to play as well as we put the right set of services together um, for any one individual who's seeking to improve their mental health. I mentioned at the top of the podcast that you worked at a Veterans Administration Hospital early in your career with patients experiencing post-traumatic stress. How did that experience shape your perspective and how do your experiences there compare or contrast with your work with cancer patients and their families? It was a real honor to spend a year at the Murfreesboro VA Hospital in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And um, I'm very grateful for the training that I received there and the time that I spent there. And to get to interact with, uh, with veterans who had served our country was a tremendous honor. And it was a very different population in lots of ways than the population I'd primarily worked with to that point, which as you mentioned, were people who had been diagnosed with cancer, but specifically mostly until that time, um, breast cancer survivors who are overwhelmingly women. Whereas when I moved to the VA, I was working with a primarily male population. So, so that was that was a different, certainly gave me new experience that I was grateful to get. Um, and some of the things that, that those populations had in common though, were uh, trauma histories, different kinds of, of trauma, but often people experience a diagnosis of cancer and its treatment in, in some ways as being traumatic. And I was working with lots of veterans from the Vietnam War who had a history of trauma um, at that time. Um, in, and, and, and sort of bearing witness to and supporting people to cope um, with life-threatening situations or the aftermath of those life-threatening situations was a commonality as well. It's interesting though, like it was also such, such a privilege in both cases, work I've done with people diagnosed with cancer and with the veteran population to bear witness to such tremendous resilience. You know, people are capable of such incredible resilience. And in both instances, with both populations, you certainly bear witness to a lot of pain and suffering as well. But I have always felt like what I was able to observe and learn from these people, just their resilience was unbelievably inspirational to me and something that, um, that I've definitely carried with me and that's affected me personally and professionally and that I've really certainly benefited from. And for that, I'm, I'm grateful to everyone I've ever had the privilege of working with as a psychotherapist. And just staying with the military for another moment, a massive obstacle and fear for military personnel is the fact that they can lose their security clearance, lose further promotions, or even face discharge and a loss of benefits if they seek mental health care. You also worked for the RAND Corporation and did some work with the Air Force concerning that branch's mental health policies. What was the outcome and what should the policy be across all branches of the military? I wish I could tell you that I felt qualified to speak to the policies of, of the military. I'm probably not, but I will, share, I will share some thoughts. So I did, I was very fortunate to do a lot of work on military mental health at RAND Corporation uh, from 2007 to 2010. And a couple of things. One is that some of the work that we did influenced policies that changed, where receiving mental health treatment no longer became a barrier to certain levels of security clearance, which I think is appropriate. Um, I will say that one of the things I really appreciated and learned uh, from the experience of, of working uh, with, with, with the Air Force at RAND was the sort of reimagining or recasting the idea of, of mental health challenges as force readiness, right? So they, they really contextualized the idea of, and, and I, I wish we did this more sort of broadly, right? Gets back to this discussion of, do we think about our mental health as being as important as our physical health, right? And so to think about the mental health of service members as instrumental to the readiness of the force, you know, that's how I think about my own mental health, right? I mean, how ready am I to execute on the tasks that I have in any given day? Like, you know, I, no one would expect me to be ready if I was down with the flu, you know, but, but we expect ourselves to be ready when we've had three hours of sleep. We expect ourselves to be ready when maybe our mood is very low because we're going through some kind of episodic stressor. So I really loved how the military reimagined mental health as a core component of force readiness. But to your question about what the policy should be, I mean, 
I would say that it's not the presence of uh, mental health symptoms or even mental illness that I think is the threat to force readiness or to whatever the military may need its service members to do. I think more threatening is a lack of self-awareness and a lack of initiative to receive the care that's needed to recover from whatever those symptoms or illness might be, right? So, so I think it is incumbent upon all of us and certainly you know, to take responsibility for our health and well-being. And, and I do wanna say again, like that's within easier reach for some of us than for others, particularly those of us who are resourced. But it is really incumbent upon all of us to have a level of self-awareness of how take that sort of self-inventory on how we're doing and get the help that we need to show up in our lives the way we need to show up. And certainly service members have an extremely high bar in the way they have to show up. Um, so that to me would be the concern. If my, my force weren't self-aware enough and able to pursue um, you know, intervention to ensure their own readiness, I would be more concerned about that than, than the presence of mental health symptoms uh, per se. You mentioned force readiness there a handful of times. Should that be the approach that law enforcement agencies take or should they be doing something different? I don't know a whole lot about law enforcement agencies, but I, but again, I, you know, and, and, and what should or shouldn't happen there. But I do think for any workforce, you know, the, both the physical and the mental health of the workforce is critical for, you know, and optimizing and, and doing, making whatever investments need to be made in your mental and physical health is typically pretty important for you to be ready to execute on the tasks that you have in your personal life and in your professional life. Two of my guests last year were young black men who are mental health advocates in their community in Virginia. They were talking about the phenomenon in the black community of the barber serving the role of psych psychologist and mental health mentor for black men. That raises the question, who's a psychologist psychologist? Who do mental health professionals seek out to preserve their own mental health after day of listening to other people's problems and crisis? So I, that's a great question. And I think that burnout in the mental health provider field is a, is a very real thing that is as important to discuss as we think about burnout in, in nurses and physicians and other healthcare, other healthcare providers. Um, part of what you know, and there's a long history there of thinking about leveraging community sites like barbershops and hair salons, even places of worship. Um, certainly, there's so much value to be gleaned there, partly because those places are integrated into people's daily lives. You know, and, and I, one of the many things that I like about that approach is that it, again, it sort of underscores the way that our mental and physical health should just be integrated into our daily lives. But I think that the psychologist's psychologist is typically a psychologist, <laughs> you know, that it's, that it's typically a, a, a licensed mental health provider um, or, you know, a counselor who's uh, appropriately credentialed and can deliver evidence-based interventions and with whom uh, you have rapport, right? Sometimes when people seek mental health treatment, and this is challenging, right, because we've talked about how there's a shortage of providers and people often have to wait a long time to connect with a provider. But there's also this element of what we would call the therapeutic alliance that's important. You know, it might be that the first mental health provider you connect with is not ultimately the one that you're going to have that therapeutic alliance with that will really help you achieve the growth and change that you're seeking to, um, to achieve. So sometimes you have to try a couple of providers before you find the right fit. And and while that's totally understandable, you know, it is challenging because if you have to wait a few months to meet the first one and then wait a few months to meet the second one, like that, that that's not a picture that typically has a good outcome. But I think that, you know, it's, it's absolutely very important for mental health providers to take care of their own mental health. And I think that often means, and I know it has for me, to be active participants in their own psychotherapy or counseling to make sure that they're able to, you know, it's just like the airplane, Chris, right? You got to put your own mask on before you put somebody else's mask on. You know, I think how you can show up and be a good healer and helper as a mental health provider um, is in large part contingent on, on your own mental health and well-being, which we uh, have to seek to, to, to nurture and optimize as well. I remember asking those two young men, you know, who's the barber's barber? So the same question. And as you were just talking, I was remembering as a kid. So I grew up with my grandparents and I remember the, the minister of my church, his name was Jim. 
and my grandfather did not go to church, but whenever he needed to talk, he would call my grandfather and my grandfather just hang up the phone and I'll meet you at Bucky's in five minutes and Bucky's was a local watering hole. And so to the point, your point, everyone needs somebody to talk to about something. And so just find that platform, find that outlet, find someone that you can trust and confide in. Um, I'm working with some NFL players and they have a program called Lint Brother. And it's like getting really close. And, you know, the, the idea there is that black men just don't share anything and get close enough to somebody to be like, you know, I'm sharing everything with you and I'll kill you if you tell somebody, but at least I'm sharing it with you. And so there's different ways, different avenues. And so it's just a matter to your point of seeking out what works for you, looking for that right avenue uh, that you're comfortable with, because everyone has a different comfort level and tune in terms of what they're, they're willing to or not to share. And, and to your point, it may not always be a licensed mental health provider, right? I don't want to underestimate the, the very real and measurable impact that strong social ties with friends and families, uh, family members can have, you know, just having that trusted, reliable source of support. Now there are, you know, there are, are, are about, you know, you, you probably are not going to want to expect a friend or a family member to be your therapist, right? I mean, there are boundaries there, but that's not just, not everyone needs a therapist, right? Some people just need that good friend or that, you know, close family member who they can confide in. So support can come in all uh, shapes and sizes, um, but certainly for people who want to engage in mental health treatment or people for whom, you know, symptoms um, or mental illness are, are really becoming functionally impairing or exceeding the bounds of what they're able to get support from friends and family for, you know, that's when, you know, disciplined and intentional pursuit of mental health treatment is probably an important thing to bring on board. We have just a few minutes remaining in our conversation. What final words of advice would you offer to our audience to help them be more resilient, more self-empowered, and take better care of themselves and the people they love and achieve those? That's a great question that I thought a lot, thank you for giving me a heads up on it. It's a hard question to answer. Um, but I think that the way I wanna answer it is something that I think a lot about is reciprocity. And, and I also wanted to say that I thought about this question, of course, I'm gonna answer it through my own lens, right? Which is, which, is, which is a very privileged lens, but I'm a big believer in reciprocity. I think that we talk a fair amount about gratitude and gratitude is important. And we talk about having a culture of gratitude, but I think we have to move beyond the culture of gratitude towards a culture of reciprocity. And I don't mean tit for tat. I mean, if you have enough, then give some away. If you are a person who is living in abundance, then figure out how to support and love and care for those around you. You know, live in reciprocity with the gifts you have been given and have the grace to accept help and gifts from others if you're in a place of need. I mean, I think that if we did that more across the board, um, that, that, that the world would be a, a better and a different place. I also think that the value of connection and connection with others and leveraging connectivity for connection. I mean, certainly the very, uh, the, the world we live in that is just you know flush with connectivity allows for lots of connection, but but we have to remember that you know not all connectivity is the same as connection. Authentic connection is so important. Connection with ourselves and connection with each other um, is is critically important too. Dr. Ellen Beckjord, host of the podcast Good Health Better World. Thanks so much for being with us today. It was my pleasure, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks to our audience for tuning in this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.